Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we now have a Patreon link that you can access in the episode show notes. You can contribute as little as $1 a month or send a one-time payment through our PayPal account, also in our show notes, or at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. These contributions allow us to continue producing a weekly episode helping families be able to tell their loved ones' stories. I want to thank you all so much for your support, and don't forget to join our Facebook group. Danik Adams was murdered on August 15th, 2008, and this is her mother's story. Hi, Amy. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly. And I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Jonesboro is a city in Arkansas and is in the northeastern part of the United States. This city was inhabited by indigenous people for thousands of years. In 1859, Jonesboro had 150 residents, which has since grown to just under 70,000. When the railway was first constructed running through Jonesboro, The very first train's journey through the city got stuck and all of the supplies had to be unloaded and carried into the town. Jonesboro is a beautiful year-round destination for those that enjoy outdoor activities. Both locals and tourists enjoy the many things to do. There is a city-owned park called the Craighead Forest Park and it features 60 acres of fishing, camping, and hiking facilities. Not only fishing is enjoyed here at this beautiful lake, many love to dip their feet in or go for a swim. The lake is fantastic and beautiful and has walking trails that abound throughout. The Arkansas Game and Fish Commission opened a 160-acre area called the Forest L. Wood Crowley's Ridge Nature Center and it exhibits the origins and history of the ridge. You can hike and enjoy the land and water features as well. The stunning hiking trails are both relaxing and beautiful. There are many outdoor nature areas you can enjoy and spend time in. A notable person from Arkansas is Sam Walton, who began the first of the Walmart stores borrowing $20,000 from his father-in-law and opening the first store, keeping the prices as low as possible with a wide range of items and staying open later than other stores. A hopefully good move toward helping victims' families is that Governor Hutchison has created the Law Enforcement Task Force to advance the state of law enforcement in Arkansas. It was created to have the best procedures for recruiting, training, 
and maintaining law enforcement officers in Arkansas. Amy Adams was 16 years old when she went into labor with her first child, Danik. Obviously oblivious to the realities of childbirth and being a mother, this young girl was at home living with her father when she began the early stages of labor. The day of your child's birth, what was that day like for you? Oh my goodness. (laughs) So I was 16 years old. And um, I can't remember like waking up at like maybe 630 in the morning. And my father played um, rock and roll. He also owned a gym, but he would play on the weekends. And so he came in that morning at about 530, him and his girlfriend. And I remember just getting cramps so bad. And I was going into labor and I was living in a small town in Arkansas, Jonesboro. And then all of a sudden, I um, um, went and had to wake them up. They had only been asleep for an hour. And because Danik was two months premature, they didn't have the equipment at the small town, so they rushed me to Memphis, Tennessee. And so I had Danik that day. And I can remember I was in so much pain, and I was a little girl, and these two nurses were talking about where they were going to go eat lunch. And I just thought, I remember raising up and being a 16-year-old kid, and I said, I don't care where the heck y'all go eat lunch. Get this baby out of me. And Danik weighed three pounds and eight ounces. And I remember sticking my finger in the incubator, and she wrapped her little fingers around mine, and it was like over. Like, I fell in love right then. There's a song, Baby, When I See You Smile. Um, back in the day in the eighties. And when that song came on, I was beating her and she started smiling at me. And I remember that song was playing in the background. And so when we had her funeral, that's one of the songs that I played because it reminded me of the very first time I held her and fed her. This young mother fell in love with her beautiful, precious daughter. The worries began on day one, having given birth prematurely to a wee little newborn. Amy and Danik headed home, not sure how to care for a baby. Amy felt out of her league. Danik's mom did not have a healthy relationship with her own mother growing up, so hadn't really learned how to care for someone else in the loving way that she desperately wanted to. Amy wanted absolutely nothing but the best for her sweet and special daughter. Danik was transferred back to Jonesboro after her premature birth, so she could be closer to her family. After two months in the hospital, going every single day to feed and spend time with Danik, Amy brought her lovely daughter home from the hospital. Danik was the size of an old-fashioned cell phone, so tiny she could fit in the palm of Amy's hand. And what was she like as a baby? Um, she was colicky and I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, about, I'd say about nine months later, I moved in with one, well, maybe six months. Um, I'd moved in with a friend of mine and her mom. And, um, that's because she came to our apartment, my apartment and my best friend's apartment. And like, I had a job, um, um, 
I didn't finish school, but I ended up finishing and it even went on to college. But, um, when I had her, it was like, I didn't know how to be a mom. You know, I didn't know what was, what to do. And she was crying a lot and I didn't really know a lot of things. So uh, my best friend's mom helped me out a lot and my family, my Nana helped me out. Um, but she was real colicky and she was always little, you know, and they said that she'd always be behind and she may, you know, need some help and stuff. But that girl can miss 25 days of school and go in and take a test and ace it. When Danik was one year old, she went to live with Amy's Nana. Amy was ill-equipped to care for her daughter full-time, so she knew the right thing to do was to let her go. Amy was still partying and not quite ready to let go of her youth and give herself to her baby full-time. When Danik was first born, her father tried to be involved. They all lived together and tried to be a family. But his parents stepped in and said he was too young to raise a family. He had to finish high school and go to college. He had to live in their view. This left Amy all alone, already estranged from her mother. Nana and Amy co-parented. During the weekdays, Amy would work, knowing that Danik was safe and loved and being cared for properly, allowing this young teenage mother the time to try and figure out who she was and what she wanted to do with her life. She had Danik on the weekends and enjoyed every second of the time they would spend together. Four years after Danik was born, a brother was brought into the world. A brother that Danik loved very much. He lived with his paternal grandparents. Every weekend, they would spend together, Danik, her brother and mother, going on outings, enjoying each other, and playing together. So on the weekend, what we would do is we would go see Justin and we would stay there. And um, Justin's grandparents, Bev and Fred, um, they are and have been the most wonderful people to um, to me at all times. They It's like an open door. I could come in, in and out whenever I wanted and see Justin. They never, ever kept me from him. And I had given them um, temporary guardianship. And my life kind of turned out in a different way and it's because I had trauma when I was a child from one of my mother's husbands and it caused me to go down the wrong road and here I am with two babies from two different guys and I'm young and I just um, had a hard time being a mom. I didn't know how to be one because um, I left my mom when I was in the eighth grade and went to move in with my dad. And I've not really spoken to my mom. Like, I can never remember times when she said, I love you or anything like that. It's been really hard not having her in my life, but it's also made me see that, hey, my kids need me. So that's why um, when I was doing really good, Danik was 11 and I took Danik and I was never going to rip Justin out of Bev and Fred's life because they were just doing such a great job. And, you know, and he had everything he wanted there. He had ski boats and they had, he, you know, ended up getting his first truck there. They paid for him to go to college in Fayetteville. Like I did the right thing. Um, because if he would have been with me, he would have never had it, any of those things because I was too busy numbing all my pain from all the trauma that I had. And, 
Um, I had witnessed um, when I was 23 um, a really, really good friend of mine. We had gone to Jonesboro to see my son, actually, and we were leaving Jonesboro to come back to Little Rock. And when we did, an 18-wheeler hit him. We had two cars, and it was terrible, and he was laying. There was nothing left to the car but the um First, the passenger seat and the, and the driver's seat was just gone and the back seats were gone. And he was hanging over the sunroof and there was like a pool of blood. And I will never, ever, ever forget that. Suffering the many traumas that Danik's mother did added to the struggles she had to contend with in her life. She was trying to cope with all of her own struggles while trying to support herself and her children. She worked very hard to overcome her many challenges. When Danik was 11 years old, she moved back in with her mother full-time and they enjoyed the close bond that continued to grow and develop. She went to church on Wednesday nights and went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday nights. And then um, around the age 11, she um, was living with me and she stayed living with me from 11 to the time she got murdered, to right about a couple months before she got murdered. What was she like as a student then? What was was her relationship like with her teachers and her peers? She was straight A's. She actually ended up in one of the presidential books of some sort, some kind of thing that for the highest grades. So she got to go and meet, it was either the governor or the president, and I can't remember. For some reason, I'm thinking Bill Clinton. I don't know. But she had, um, she was that smart that she was in a book. And so, and, and she was younger. She was like in sixth grade or fifth grade back then when she got that award, but still, it was pretty good. And then when she got in high school, it was like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't really want to go to school. You're my mom, and I'm as tall as you, and you can't stop me. So she would get on the bus. I would literally make her get on the bus, and then she would get off and walk right off campus. And so when I say missing 25 days, I'm not playing. And then she would go back into school and have a test and just ace it. She made straight A's. She was as smart as she could be. Like, she could have done anything she wanted to do. She was, like, that, that smart. And her her brother is just that smart, too. He's in um, finished graduating from college and is doing very well and has a, a degree in environmental science and is making 180 I think, something like that a year. So he's doing quite well, and I think Danik would have done the same. This is the story of Danik Adams' murder. She started Jacksonville High School in Jacksonville, Arkansas, and she made a lot of friends, and then that's when she met her boyfriend, Raul, and um, her, basically, at that point, it was all my friends that's what's important. All my friends and I'm going to be a teenager and I'm going to, you know, go to school when I want to. And it was kind of like that. So Danik and I would bump heads a lot when it came to her schooling and things like that. And she was the same size as me, you know, (laughs) she ended up growing taller, just an inch, but still. And, um, she was just a really pretty girl and she was very feisty. She stuck up for herself. Um, she could get herself out of trouble. She loved unconditionally. Um, She would always tell me, you know, Mama, you can do it this time. Mama, you can do it this time. And that was me 
you know, numbing my pain and taking drugs and alcohol to numb, you know, all the trauma and the loss that I'd had. And so, um, but then, um, when she was 18 is when she was, um, had a baby and then she was kind of running around and doing what she wanted to. And her boyfriend and I had just split up. They'd been not together for three months. And that's when she got murdered on August the 15th, 2008. Tell me about the horrible moment that you found out that your daughter had been murdered. Well, um, I was at that time bartending and I was living with my friend who was also bartending at the same place I was. And, you know, like I say, Danica was an adult. She was, her birthday was September 23rd. So she was turning 19 and she was 18 at the time. And she, I had said that day, this is what I remember. I remember that day because that day was strange. And I kept saying to my friend, Anna, we got to call Danik. We got to call Danik. We got to get Danik over here. Danik's got to hang out with us tonight. Let's go to the bar we work at and let's let her hang out there because the owner would let her come in. You know, she was 18, not 21, but he still would let her come in. And so I, that day, kept thinking about that. And I never called her. So at 1030 that night, I get a call from her. And she says, um, mama, did you call me? And I said, yes, I want to talk to you. And I was going to ask her to come over, but she said, uh, mama, 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 I got to go. You're eating up my minutes. Um, you're on a landline. I got to go. I'll call you back later. And she said, I'm going with princess. And she hung up on me. And this little girl hung up on me every time she talked to me. She never said bye. It's like you would just be sitting there and talking and nobody would get on the other line. She would always hang up on me. So she hung up on me that night, just like she always does. And I remember thinking, that little brat, you know, hanging up on me. And then my friend next to me was like, she always hangs up on you. Don't worry about it. She'll call you back. So about that time, I was writing in my journal. And the last thing I wrote in my journal says, I guess everything just happens for a reason. And I shut the book. And then it's crazy because on the next page, it's written in red, and it says, oh, my God, Danik is dead. How do I breathe? How do I do this, God? Like, how do I live? And it, it's just, and then I look back at that, and the last thing I said was everything happened for a reason. So it was super weird to me that, that I would written that and then the next day. So um, I got a call that night after I was writing in my journal. I got a call. It was about 2.30 in the morning, and the person on the other end was someone that I know goes to bed at 8 or 9 o'clock. So I was thinking, why in the world am I getting a call from this person? And I said, well, what's going on? As soon as I answered, because I knew something has to be something because he wouldn't be calling. So I said, well, what's going on? And he said, Amy, you need to get to the fitness center right now. And my dad owns that fitness center. He's part owner in that fitness center. So I was like, what's going on? He said, there's been a shooting and Danik's involved. You need to get to the, to the fitness center. And I'm telling you, as soon as I hung that phone up, I knew she was gone. And I went around in a circle and I don't really know what I was doing. I was trying to find my clothes to put on. And like my friend was trying to help me because I just couldn't think. And I kept saying, oh my God, she's dead. She's dead. I know she's dead. And they, and Anna and my friend, Mike, who owns that bar, uh, you know, the bar had closed it too. So he was over there with us. And he, so those two took me 
to Jacksonville. We all three jumped in the car and we went and, and I pretty much got there when there was a lot of people there. There was no yellow tape put up. I don't remember, like, anybody could walk all over the gym parking lot. It was crazy. I remember there was one police officer, and all he kept saying is, who's the mom, who's the mom? And then I got out hearing him say that, and I was like, I'm the mom. And he said, you need to go to the crime lab and identify her body. And that's what I got. That's all I got. Uh, It absolutely was terrible. I had no idea what to do. And he sends us to the crime lab, knowing it's closed, at 4.30 in the morning on Saturday, by the time we had got to the crime lab, it was like 4.30 in the morning, and the crime lab isn't even open. Then I hear that this black person comes out of the bushes from the fitness center, says, give me your cell phone and your money, and they give it up. Now, this is Princess's story to me. And then um, the she the, or the suspect said, "Let me take your car." And said, "Danny, give me your car." And she's like, "You've got me effed up. You're not taking my car." And he said, "Oh yeah, B word." Pulls up his mask and shoots her five times. And then Princess runs out of her shoes, jumps a barbed wire fence looking thing, and um, goes to some random uh, apartment. And she calls nine one one, and her nine one one tape sounds super suspicious let's say because she used words like they and killed and were like so how do you know Danik was dead if you ran the suspect gets in Danik's car he goes up the road he picks up a hitchhiker when he could have went right and got on the interstate which the way princess ran he could have got right on the interstate took the exit for Memphis and been the hell out of here but he went 25 miles an hour down into Jacksonville, into the town, the little downtown area, went um, that way and picked up a hitchhiker and then goes towards back towards the fitness center. And the police pull him over and he runs and has never been seen or heard of since. Nobody knows who that is. So they, the cop doesn't run after the person because there's another person in the car. And I guess that's their protocol. If there's someone in the car, they stay with the car. They don't run after the person. The girl that was left in the car says she didn't know the driver. Amy finds things just don't make any sense that a murderer drove down the road, away from the freeway, away from safety, away from the way to get out of town, but instead goes in the opposite direction and picks up a hitchhiker. The girl in the car seems to clearly not have been involved as she has been questioned numerous times and has passed each lie detector test that she has been given. All she knows is that the guy that picked her up said his name was Memphis Mike but there has never been anyone found that goes by that name. The killer seems to have just disappeared into thin air. And so my theory is the guy who shot Danik drove the car somewhere, left it running and on, and maybe even the door open, and took off. And then some guys walking around saying, hey, oh, free car. 
I think I'll get in it and ride or go do whatever. And so that guy gets in the car, he sees Kim, picks her up, and then he starts going towards the fitness center because he has no idea that that car had just shot and killed somebody and somebody who was in it, you know, was harmed. I don't think that person knew that. Otherwise, why would they be driving right back to the scene where all the police are waiting on them? Danik and her friend were at a fitness center. It was a place that was open 24 hours a day and members would use a code to get inside. Unfortunately, there were no cameras at the center and the parking lot had very bad lighting. This establishment was a legitimate business and there was no reason for anyone to be afraid to be there. Danik was shot five times. Four of the bullets went in and out of her. The last bullet was found inside her body. The bullets that were not found inside of Danik's body have never been located. One important question that needs to be answered is who picked them up and why. Also, the front facing of the fitness center is all glass, yet no glass was broken by bullets, even though Danik's body was found in the front door of this wall of glass lying in a flower bed. And a disturbing fact for Danik's mother, something that haunts her, is that ants were eating at her by the time the police got there. There was also no blood. Is it possible that Danik was murdered elsewhere and her body was brought to the fitness center as a place to dispose of her? There were a few guys in the gym that night, and they left and went back for their forgotten cell phones. And they say they never saw Danik, not before or after they left. Which, when Amy looks at the timing, this just doesn't add up either. One of these fellows is now in the military. So Amy is hoping, no, praying, that if he saw something, his conscience kicks in at some point, soon, and says what they really saw that night. To add to all of the confused facts in this case, the girl Danik was with when she was murdered in cold blood? Her story changes every time anyone speaks with her. They never give this this other girl, Princess, a lie detector test? They did, and she spoiled it every time. They are waiting to get an opportunity to interview this girl again. She is constantly stating how Danik was her best friend, even though they never really hung out before, to her mother's knowledge. Yet if this is the case, why isn't this girl freely giving an honest, reliable, continuously unchanging account of what happened that night? Danik's phone was found in her back pocket when she was murdered. The murderer had apparently asked for their phones and money. The other girl's phone was taken and found a short while later in the possession of another man. He claims that he bought the phone secondhand from his pot dealer. The police have no reason to believe this guy is involved in the murder. 
What an awful place for Danik's mother, Amy, to be in. She has been waiting 12 long years to find out what happened and who killed her beautiful, spunky daughter. At the time when it happened, that I went to the fitness center every night at 2.30 to tan because I wanted them to come back. I wanted them to come back where they were. And that's the craziness that you get because it's trauma and it makes you lose your mind. And so I numbed mine with, of course, drugs and alcohol, go back to the same thing that I cope, my coping skills. So I go back using that for the first three years of her uh, murder. And then um, I did try to kill myself twice and it did not work. And it should have worked because I ate or swallowed a big bottle of aspirin, which I know will kill you. And I didn't die. So I knew God had another purpose for me. It had to be. And so my aunt found an organization called Parents of Murder Children. And I started going to those meetings. And I went high and drinking and took someone with me every time for about a year. It's so funny when we look back at the meeting sheets and I've got like, there's Amy and then some dude. And Amy and then some dude. <laughs> I'm like, oh, for like a year. It's funny looking. Now that I can go back and laugh about it. Because on September the 23rd, 2011, I told myself, I'm going to get, I'm going to get myself sober. I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to go to work tonight. And it is her birthday. And this is the last time I will ever be high again. I will not be high tomorrow. And I told her that. And that night I was working as a bartender and I was on my way. I got my purse. I was out the door. I'd worked all my hours about 1030. And I turned around and ran right into what is now my husband. Um, I met him on Danik's birthday. And then he helped me so much. And I got myself sober. So I have been sober since September 23rd, 2011. Congratulations. That's really fantastic. You must feel very proud about that. I am. And then I got, um, I married him and then I was still bartending and waitressing and doing what I knew best, even though I had a degree in behavioral science. Um, I usually worked with kids with behavioral problems in hospitals, but after she got murdered, I couldn't concentrate. You can't, you can't concentrate. You lose your memory. People get fired from their jobs. People quit. Like you just can't do it. In fact, I quit the bar that I was at when she got murdered, like that night, I was like, I'm done, you know, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But I, you know, eventually went back to bartending. So that night, um, I was bartending and I met my husband and then, um, I stayed sober and parents of murdered children had a position and they asked me if I wanted it. It was just part time. And I mean, I fell to my knees and I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. This is it. This is what you want me to do. Because I had taken my last class in semester was a death and dying class. And Danik got to come to school with me. And my teacher was psychology, and usually psychology teachers are fun. So Danik got to come to school with me um, during my college. And we my last class was death and dying. And I don't know why. And I had gotten up there and told the story about Jeff. And now I you know, got a degree in behavioral science. And I wanted to hunt down child molesters and put them in jail for like, ever and ever and ever and never let them out because they do not get rehabilitated. And so that's kind of what I wanted to fight for and go to the FBI. But then Danik got murdered and my life just kind of changed. And then I thought, that's why I had that death and dying class in college because 
now I'm surrounded with death, and I deal with homicide on a daily basis. Um, I ha- answer a 24-hour crisis hotline. I go to court with them to all their hearings. I sit through their trials with them. I have two monthly meetings. Uh, we're covering the state of the whole state of Arkansas now, so we have meetings in other towns. And that's what I wanted to do because I thought if I didn't know what to do when that happened to me and I had to go do drugs and alcohol for three years because no one helped me, no one told me there were any resources, any help out here. And honestly, if it wasn't for my aunt finding this organization and this support group, because they're the only people who got it. If you have not lost a child you cannot tell someone how to grieve. It is impossible. And the words closure, oh, I just don't cringe when I hear closure because there's no closure. There's that empty seat at the table every Thanksgiving and every Christmas and every birthday. And then you've got the death date. So it's like you're in a constant thing of grief. And if you don't learn how to do that, you can get stuck there. It can be horrible. You can end up killing yourself. And I knew that's why God didn't kill me all those times I was trying to kill myself because this is what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to get out here and help other people. And so now for the past almost nine years, this is what I've been doing. I've been helping other people. And I've been trying to solve my baby's case, and I am not going to quit till I do it. Danik was a feisty, outgoing, very intelligent beautiful, fun-loving daughter, granddaughter, sister, and mother. She will forever be loved by so many people and remembered by even more. I seriously hope and pray that someone comes forward with information. And just to be sure that everyone listening knows, there is a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the monster that made a choice that day to, for no reason, randomly shoot and kill a sweet little 18-year-old. Amy wanted to go into police training program and teach the police how to speak with parents after a murder or to speak with any family members dealing with a murder in their family. The lack of tact that is shown over and over again by the police, dealing with these situations is dreadful. Loved ones should not have to deal with poor police conduct while trying to wrap their heads around the fact that their loved one has been murdered. Amy already teaches groups how to speak to victims. Two important things that should never be said by the police right after a murder are, how are you doing? A parent's thoughts are, how do you think I'm doing? My child was just murdered. Or don't say I understand. The world does not understand the impact a murder has on loved ones. The trauma is so hard-hitting and gut-wrenching, breathtakingly painful, that unless you have personally lived through it, you cannot even begin to understand even the tiniest iota what they are going through. After such a severe trauma and tragedy, the brain starts to think differently many times. You have reactions that you aren't expecting. Your body reacts to sounds and noises, smells and tastes, or your brain simply goes and has thoughts of its own. So this year, I still thought 
oh my gosh, Friday night's coming up. Maybe I can stop it. Like, it was weird inside my brain. Like, I was trying to stop what happened to Danik 12 years ago because it fell exactly like it did that night on a Friday. It's I don't even know why I felt like that, but I just kept thinking I could, you know, it's not going to happen. I can stop it or it's not real. And I don't know why my brain went that way, but it did this year. At one particular meeting that Amy had attended toward the beginning of her journey into group therapy, back when she was still so raw that it was hard to get out of bed, let alone walk out the door and try to work, or see a friend, or take a shower, she heard someone say it had been six years that their case was unsolved, and Amy thought, how can that be, six years? Someone hasn't been caught yet? And now here she is, 12 years, and still waiting. I'm so grateful for parents and married children and for Josh and for his family. His family helped me, and um, I'm proud that I went back to church. What types of things do you like to do in memory of your daughter? Um, well, so when it first happened, I do what a lot of people do, and I had, like, a shrine of her. Like, it was, like, I took pink lights and put it on a wall and had uh, just pictures of her, and I had ones that, that pictures of her that I would kiss and stuff. When, you know, just I would walk up to her and kiss her on, you know, just... I did that for a long time. I never did a candlelight visual. And then on her eighth year, I decided to do a balloon release. And it took so much out of me, I just couldn't do it. And another thing I don't like to do is I don't like to go to the grave site. I have been there maybe 14 times in 12 years. I count every time I go. And um, that's another thing survivors do. They count a lot. But um, anyway, so um, I just, I, I honestly, what I do is I talk about her. I put her out in the media every year. Um, she has been on a billboard before. I think she needs to go back up again. I do honor her on her birthday. I will go to a restaurant and then tip whatever age she is, whatever age she's turning. Like this year, she'll be turning 31. So some waitress will get $31 on her birthday. Do you have a particular piece of advice you'd like to share with people right, you know, right after they've dealt with an extreme trauma where their child's been murdered, that you can give them some piece of advice that they can hold on to and maybe, uh, you know, use that to uh, get through the early times? Okay, I do, because this is something what a lot of people don't know. In most every state, there is a compensation form. We call ours um, a reparation board. Um, we call ours the Arkansas Compensation Board, and it's, risk, it's like um, they pay for the funerals. So a lot of times when people have homicides, they want to do a GoFundMe. They want to, you know, people are trying to put their money together. And so basically they do have states that will pay for your funeral and then reimburse you if you paid for it up front. And they have a cap, like Arkansas's cap is um, $7,500. And so a lot of people don't know that. Also, a lot of people don't know that they have rights, that their children have rights. Um, Arkansas has not adapted any kind of um, solid victim rights. Other people have adapted Marcy's Law, which is a wonderful thing for victims. And um, I think it's important for people to know their rights. And I think it is also very, very important to um, have open communication 
when they're going through the criminal justice system with their um, attorneys or prosecutor or district attorney, um, they call it in other states, we call it prosecuting attorneys in Arkansas. But to just have a good relationship with the detectives, with the um, prosecutors, and with um, just whoever, whoever, a victim advocate, like someone like me, um, go to support groups, go around people that you know are just like you, because if you cannot tell the world, people in your family will be saying, you need to get over this, you need to move on, you need to get past this, you need to, you know, that's been five years ago, it's been six months ago, it's been 20 years, it doesn't matter. You still have a void. You still feel like your arm has been cut off. You still feel like you are dying at certain times, and you still get in fetal position and scream and cry out to God and sometimes you cry so hard you can't hear yourself. So I suggest that people go through with that, get that out of them, and don't have it just in your throat because it'll stay right there in your throat, and you won't have to live like that. And it hurts really bad to just shove it back down, shove it back down. So I suggest get that out. If you're angry, get a bat to the tree. If you're sad, get in a fetal position, even in the bottom of a closet, in the dark, wherever, and cry that out. Get it out because it, it, it just gets worse. And do not try to numb your pain when drugs or alcohol because you have to start all over. You have to start right there. So at my three-year mark, I should have been where I can breathe and I can stand up and I can move at my three-year mark. But my three-year mark had been all drugs and alcohol. So I had to start from the very beginning of my grieving. So my grieving is a little bit behind other people, but I just find it to help others. Like if you're, if you know someone who's lost their child, go talk to them and get them help. They need therapy. But you also have to be very careful when you go see a doctor and you need to tell them that it's grief because if not, you're going to look like you're bipolar. So, and then they'll start giving you a bunch of meds you don't need. So I would just say, especially like the most important thing would be know your rights. Other things to remember are that when you are grieving, you will forget things constantly and consistently. It is a good idea to carry a notepad and pencil with you everywhere you go. At every moment that something happens, jot it down. When you get the death certificate, when you speak with a detective and which one, and briefly what you spoke about and the date and time. When you speak with a prosecutor, a lawyer, a police officer, anything at all regarding your loved one's murder investigation, take notes. You never know when those dates will come in handy. This way, you won't have to worry about forgetting anything. Amy is a strong woman, and she is fighting for those that need help. She is available, and she helps however she can. She answers the 24-hour call line. She is doing such good for her community. And I really want to thank you for being on the podcast today. It was, uh, it was really nice of you to take time out of your busy life. I'm really happy that you've been able to stay sober and that you're helping others now. That's really lovely, and thank you very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you letting me talk about Danik. Um, I just love her and I miss her so much and I just really appreciate you allowing me to talk about her. Well, thank you. I I appreciate your kind words. That's really, really nice of you to say. And thank you again. And if ever there's anything, you can always give me a call or email me. Okay, I will. Thank you so much.
All right. Thank you, too. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, All you right. take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.